Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Dan Grunfeld. He is a former professional basketball player, an accomplished writer, and a proud graduate of Stanford University. An academic All-American and All-Conference basketball selection at Stanford, Dan played professionally for eight seasons in top leagues around the world. Dan's writing has been published more than 40 times in media outlets such as Sports Illustrated, The Jerusalem Post, and NBC News. Dan earned his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business in 2017 and lives with his wife and son in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he works in venture capital. He is the author of the best-selling book, By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dan. Thank you, Jim, for having me. Yep. So congratulations on your awesome new book, uh, By the Grace of the Game. Um, Tell us uh, a little bit about the book, and then we have a million questions for you about the book, about all these things that you talk about in the book, and uh, we're just excited to dive in. Yeah, so am I. So you know, my background is in sports, is in basketball, and so I played collegially at Stanford. I played eight years professionally in leagues all over the world. My dad is a very known NBA player and executive, but few people know that he's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust, and those are my grandparents. And actually, I did a year and a half of research for my book, and that research suggests that he's the only player in the history of the four major American sports leagues whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so, you know, big family story all the way from Auschwitz to the NBA, and so my book really details that journey and kind of weaves together three generations of my family. And listeners will be happy to know that my grandmother, who really is the protagonist of the story, she'll turn 97 in June. She lives in the Bay Area. She's doing amazingly well. And so, yeah, she's the, the hero of the story and the hero of our family. Yeah. Thanks so much for writing the book because it's, it's truly, a, you know, it's an American story um, about your dad coming over. And then, it, and then it's, a, it's a human story about overcoming the odds and and um, just, you know, I, just about your dad, you know, is almost like a Rocky figure, you know, to me in terms of like, you know, you could have a movie about him and then you've had your own sort of Rocky experiences, you know, playing, you know, going to Stanford and then playing pro and then, um, you know, uh, MBA, earning an MBA a degree from Harvard or from uh, Stanford and then writing, writing your first book. What, what's the, is, how, where does the book stack up in terms of uh, the hard things that you've accomplished in your life? Wow. You know, I don't think I've ever, and reading my book, you'll get a sense of how stressed I was during my basketball career. I mean, I went really hard. I put a lot of pressure on myself, not only because my dad was a great player, but you know, I have this really complicated family history where I have ancestors who didn't get a chance to live their dreams, you know, and that, that stays with you. And so 
for so many reasons, I put a ton of pressure on myself with basketball, but I think I felt more with the book, honestly, because, you know, it, it's, it's my whole life story. You know, it's my family. It's the people I love the most and really, really important stories, like you said, of perseverance, of survival, and it became my dream to tell it. And so I was, you know, there was a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, but also it was very rewarding and fulfilling just to be able to kind of memorialize that story, get it out there to the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, to set the scene for people who haven't listened to an interview with you yet on another show or or indeed read the book, um, in The Grace of the Game, you write that when the Nazis stormed the streets of Budapest in 1944, your grandmother, Anu, who you just mentioned, was staying with two of her sisters. Can you talk about how this particular trip and then the letters that followed um, from her father arguably saved her life and saved her from the Holocaust? Yeah, absolutely. My grandmother grew up in a very happy Orthodox Jewish home in Transylvania, so on the border of Romania and Hungary. There were 10 siblings, including her, two loving parents. And when the Nazis invaded, as you mentioned, my grandma happened to be visiting a sister in Budapest. And so, and then another one of her sisters was visiting too. So there were three of them there and they got a letter from their father as soon as the Nazis invaded that said, come home immediately. And their father, my great-grandfather, was their hero. My grandmother still talks about him, tells stories about him. He was known in, the, in their community as being the wisest person. He was just really a special person. And so he told them, come home immediately. They packed their suitcases. The next day, as they were preparing to leave for the train station, they got another letter from him that said, if you can, stay where you are. And that's the last communication they ever had with my great-grandfather. He and the rest of the family were taken to Auschwitz and they were never heard from again. And his, my great-grandfather's name was Solomon Samuel. My son's name is Solomon after him. Uh, and my grandma still says, you know, it was that second letter that saved me from Auschwitz because she thinks that her dad, re he panicked at first. So he said, come home. But then he realized that his daughters would have a better chance of surviving in a big city because they were from a very small village. So, you know, that's what my grandmother kind of hypothesizes. But unfortunately, she'll never know because he, uh, he was killed. Yeah, really just uh, amazing how one little communication that at the time may have seemed, you know, oh, it's just another letter from dad now, um, ended up obviously having ripple effects throughout the years. And as you said, you know, without um, that intervention, then the younger Solomon, your your own son would, wouldn't be here. Pretty amazing. Um, talk a little bit about your grandfather's story and how he survived the war. Yeah, my grandfather passed away when I was a baby. He passed away when I was two. So I unfortunately didn't get a chance to know him and build a relationship with him like I have with my grandmother. But he was in a forced labor camp in Hungary. So he didn't have it easy, but he had it easier than my grandmother. You know, my grandma was eventually caught by the Nazis, put in the Budapest ghetto. You know, she was narrowly evaded a massacre in the ghetto. I mean, she really had it, had it rough. My grandfather, he was a big, strong, strapping guy, six foot three. His nickname in Hungarian, it was Hozu, which means long, because you know, he was a very tall guy, you know, and he was a world-ranked ping-pong player and kind of a semi-professional soccer player. So that's all to say they put him to work, and, you know, and, and he did that. He worked, and then his camp was liberated. And so like, he was a prisoner, but his life was never truly at risk the way my grandmother's was. I mean, lives were always at risk during the Holocaust, but my grandma really had it a little bit, a little bit harder than my grandfather did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this this story of kind of repression and growing up under under the boot of a, a repressive regime, obviously there was some, some hope at the end of the war and then, you know, kind of co the communist regime that swept across um, 
as Churchill talked about in his Iron Curtain speech, kind of uh, everywhere from East Berlin and eastwards, uh, all the way across the Soviet Empire. And um, but one of the things that stood out was how you described your father's early memories of you know playing with simple toys, and he had food, and he had two parents that loved him, and obviously his older brother at the time as well. And um, that was somewhat similar to how you described um, the orchard that your your grandmother grew up with. And do you think this ability that your family found to take take simple pleasures and, and celebrate those even in the midst of, of repression and growing up in circumstances that most of us can't even imagine is that kind of a key to everything that came later for your family i think so i mean that, that perspective really matters i remember doing research for my book and talking to my dad and i asked him this very honest question i said what was it like growing up poor right because he grew up under communism in romania and you say he played with simple toys he didn't play. He didn't actually play with toys, but he made a rock into a toy, and he made a stick into a toy. I mean, and that's real. He just didn't have toys. So my way of interpreting that was, what was it like to grow up poor? And and right away he said, I wasn't poor. You know, I had what all the other kids in the neighborhood had. You know, and and most importantly, we had food on the table. I had two loving parents. I had friends. You know, he said that's all I knew. You know, all, all that's the life I knew, and it was a good life. Now, of course, after you know, fleeing as a refugee, coming to America, seeing what's possible in America, that changes things, you know. But certainly, he grew up happy, and my grandmother too. And you know, I write in the book with great detail about what their childhood was like because they didn't have running water. Even my dad, my dad used an outhouse. You know, he didn't have running water. There was no technology. They, but there was family and there was love. You know, and that—that's really all they needed. Was there anything that, in talking with your dad and your grandmother and uh, while you were working on the book, that, that surprised you the most? Uh, something that you weren't, you know, you, you hadn't heard before? Yeah, I mean, I did a year and a half of research. So there were so many things that I uncovered, and some of them are in the book, some of them aren't. There are some really hard details. Like, I understood what happened to all of my great aunts and uncles during the Holocaust, you know, because there were five of them who were killed in different places in addition to both my great-grandparents, I learned that one of my great-aunts, the only one who came back from Auschwitz, there was one who survived. She was, uh, she was evaluated by Dr. Mengele, who's this notorious figure in history, and I didn't know that. You know? And then I found that out by talking to a cousin in Israel and looking over documents. And so that was kind of chilling because you know of these figures. And in my book, I write about Adolf Eichmann, you know, one of the, another notorious Nazi who kind of was involved in our story because he was very present in Budapest when my grandma was there. But learning that detail about Mengele was, again, very chilling. There were details I learned of my family when they arrived in the United States. I'm sure we'll get to it. Uh, Phil mentioned my uncle. You know, there were some details around my uncle that I didn't really know. But they were also very happy and funny things, you know, about my dad, you know, becoming this basketball star and little details of that as well. So when you pull every thread you can think of and double click and ask every question, you, you really uncover a lot. Yeah, there's a, you know, what is the saying? There's, a, you know, in every life, there's a thousand sorrows and I think a thousand joys. And, and mm -hmm. so it was bitter. It must have been a lot, uh, you know, very bittersweet, um, you know, learning what you learned, but then also learning some horrible things about, you know, what your family experienced and, and what so many others experienced as well. I think bittersweet is, is the right way to phrase it. You know, I always tell people, my book tries to reflect the spectrum of human emotions and there's joy and there's pain and there's tragedy and triumph and they exist alongside each other. And that, that's the way the book is. You'll laugh one chapter, you'll cry the next. And that's what my process was writing it. I, I did cry and I did laugh. Like there were 
moments in history that I lived inside of when I was writing that were really hard. You know, my great grandparents, you know, being killed in Auschwitz and, you know, tragedy when my family got to the United States. But then there was these moments of incredible triumph of my dad and probably becoming this huge basketball star, winning a gold medal for the United States. Not, you know, there was a lot of, so yeah, those emotions exist alongside each other in life, in my book and in the process of writing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it seemed to me in, in reading and then rereading a little bit in prep for this interview, Dan, that um, you know, hope and perseverance. You write are two two of the big, big kind of overarching themes there. How did you try to weave those throughout the story, even even through the darkest hours of your family's history? You know, I just tried to tell an honest story, and as you know, for the reality of what happened, I didn't really need to try. I just wanted to convey what happened because it is inherently a hopeful story. There's a lot of darkness, but there's much more light, you know? And so I just wanted to really learn it and just tell it as it happened. And when you read about people who survived the Holocaust, dealt with more tragedy, you know, my dad coming to the United States as an immigrant who didn't speak English, who had never touched a basketball, was made fun of by kids, you know, suffered a great loss when they got here then became this basketball star, the, the facts speak for themselves, you know? So I was always, of course, aware that this is a story of perseverance and hope, but I didn't really need to drill it home because it, it's, I think, readily apparent. Yeah. One of the things that, that stood out was kind of your dad's battles with the bullies in the early days. And then once he discovered the game of basketball, you know, and even as his skills grew, he still had to, you know, he's learning the language. So he's kind of maybe getting over that side of the taunting a little bit. But talk to us a little bit about that phase of his life and uh, kind of going from being, the, the you know, the kid, the immigrant that doesn't speak any English and is getting picked on to a guy that eventually is dominant on the court and is earning the respect of his opponents and maybe even doing a little intimidating of his own <laughs> yeah without a doubt so yeah, my, my dad's well known in the game of basketball right but and if you've heard him in an interview he just sounds like a new yorker but he came to the united states as an immigrant at nine years old didn't speak a word of english had never touched a basketball you mentioned my uncle who's eight years older than my dad and i kind of alluded to more tragedy in my family's history so my uncle was diagnosed with leukemia a few months after arriving in the united states and he passed away within a year. And what my dad called my uncle in Hungarian, which is their native language, translates in English to my king. That's how much he loved his brother, right? So here's my dad, again, not speaking the language, kids making fun of him, loses his hero. So he just went to the playground in New York City and, you know, to make friends, to learn English, kind of to, to escape from that loss. And he did what the other kids were doing. He just played basketball. And as he says it, if you could play ball in the neighborhood you made friends. And the better you were, the more friends you made. And so I could say to him, well, you must have made a lot of friends, you know, because it just kind of, it worked, it clicked. And I think he was such a phenomenon in high school. He very quickly became, you know, a good player. And then the best player at the park and then one of the best players in the city, then the best player in the city, one of the best players in the country. I mean, it happened so fast. And I think because the game was taking him away from things that were so hard you know, being born from the ashes of the Holocaust, losing his brother, fleeing his homeland as a refugee, right? All these things that are really traumatic for a young person. But then he found a sense of belonging on the basketball court. So I don't think he would have flown so far, so high, so fast, if it weren't taking him away from these really, really painful things. And so I also mentioned him being an Olympic gold medalist, you know, 10 years after coming to the United States and not speaking English and being made fun of and losing his brother, he was standing on top of the Olympic podium wearing the stars and stripes. 
So you mentioned this being an American dream story and really a story of triumph. That that's why. Yeah, it's really profound. Um, you wrote in the book that one of the guys that your dad patented his game on was Dave DeBuscher, who was named recently as one of the 75 greatest in NBA history. What did he particularly appreciate about Dave's style of play? So my dad's number 22 is retired at the University of Tennessee, and he wore number 22 after Dave DeBuscher, whose number 22 is retired at Madison Square Garden for the Knicks. And so when my dad came to America, he would watch the Knicks from you know the bleachers with my grandfather. It's the only tickets they could afford learning the language, just dream, you know, watching these players. And he always loved DeBusher. DeBusher was a little bit undersized. He wasn't the most athletic, but he was all heart. There was never a play that he didn't hustle or dive on the ball. And, you know, skilled, determined, but he just played the game with passion and with purpose. And I think, and very physical. And I think that's, you know, my dad, it, this is an underdog story, you know, for all the reasons I already mentioned. And I think that lives inside of him. So to see a player having great success, but doing it a little bit differently and people probably counting him out, but him still rising above and still dominating in the ways that he could. I just think as a young immigrant whose parents are Holocaust survivors who love the game, that really resonated. And that's, you know, I think that's why those Knicks teams in New York City, they meant so much to the city because that's a very New York mentality too. You know, outwork, out scrap, out hustle. And my dad learned the game on the playgrounds of Queens, New York. So I think for all those reasons, he just loved the busher. And so, yeah, again, him wearing number 22 in Tennessee was, was proof of that. Yeah. In terms of your own high school experience and your upbringing in basketball, who was your Dave DeBusher? Who was the guy that you looked up to the most? If you Google me at Nicolay High School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as, as a high schooler, you'll also see that I was wearing number 22. And so uh, I guess that was after, because my dad wore it for DeBusher, but, you know, it all, it all trickled down to me. Uh, my DeBusher growing up was John Starks. You know, so my dad, after he retired as a player for the Knicks, he worked in the organization, became the general manager of the team. So when I was growing up, he was the GM of the Knicks, and John Starks was the, the shooting guard of the team. And actually, similar reasons, right? Like, like my dad loved the Busher, I loved Starks because he was all heart. You know, he went to four colleges in Oklahoma. He was bagging groceries at a Piggly Wiggly grocery store not long before getting a chance to play. So he was an underdog. And even though I in my life, and I'm very honest about this in the book, I was born with opportunity and privilege and all these things. I still felt like an underdog in the game, you know, because I had a lot to prove. And I think seeing John, and I was so lucky because I knew him. You know, I had so so much access with my dad working for the team. So that was such an amazing thing to, to be able to get to know these guys. But just to see someone who, who overcame so much and who fought so hard, I just love John Starks. And yeah. still do, by the way. <laughs> is there a, uh, yeah, I mean, his story is almost like the Kurt Warner movie, you know, American Underdog that came out in terms of that, you know, Kurt bagging groceries and, you know, having to play Arena League and never knowing if the dream's going to happen. And then at the time kind of blowing what he thought was his only chance at the NFL. So yeah, maybe Starks deserves his, his own movie or TV show. Mm -hmm. what, I you, think so. I mean, and uh, by the way, New York City, just loved him for the reasons I mentioned about the Busher, but I think you know people end up in the places they they belong, and like for both the Busher and Starks, New York City was a place for them because they're fighters. Yeah, speaking of um, things ending up as they're supposed to be, is it right that that De Busher was instrumental in bringing your dad uh, to the Knicks at the close of his career? And if so, what must that have been like to see that kind of come full circle for him? Yeah, he was. He was running the team, you know, general manager in the eighties, and. 
my dad was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks and played for the Kansas City Kings. And yeah, the DeBusher as the general manager signed him. So maybe he saw something in my dad's game that he liked. It definitely wasn't like the dominance that DeBusher showed in the league because my dad was more of a role player, but he did. He was tough and he played with hard. And while he was dominant in high school and dominant in college, yeah, NBA, not as much, but he still played with a tremendous amount of passion. And so, yeah, DeBusher brought him in 1982 and my dad, Played the last four years of his NBA career for the Knicks, special in so many ways. You know, coming to New York City as an immigrant, learning the game there, getting a chance to play for the hometown team. You know, he wore number 18 for the Knicks, which is a symbolic number in Judaism. And so for him to be the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust to then play for the New York Knicks, you know, New York has the second largest Jewish population in the world, right outside of the state of Israel, New York City, and New York has the largest Jewish population. And so for him to wear number 18 for the Knicks as the only son of Holocaust survivors was just so special. Yeah, amazing. Um, you mentioned that, you know, obviously your, your dad being the GM of the Knicks kind of gave you insider access with Starks and Ewing and some of these other guys. But you write in the book that also it, there were some times when it maybe wasn't so advantageous, particularly at camps and this kind of thing. And the impressions that other kids got. Can can you talk a little bit about your own kind of experience with, with taunting or bullying in that sense? Yeah, without a doubt. And again, I, with my book, I just try to be very honest. You know, and so I'm the first to admit that there were incredible perks, you know, and, and opportunities and advantages and privileges, and I own all of those things. But there there is a flip side to it, you know, because people make assumptions about you. They judge you. You know, they know his dad's Ernie Grunfeld. So, you, you know, I always got the sense that People weren't giving me the credit for what I earned on the basketball court or didn't think I earned it. I tell a story in the book about get, getting an MVP trophy at Nick's summer basketball camp and the parents booing me, you know, because, which, listen, I understand, right? Parents want the best for their kids, and they saw, oh, the GM's son is the MVP. Shocker, right? And so, um, you know, listen, I was a pretty good player, and, and but I think that that put a chip on my shoulder. And I realized, listen, you have to work for it. You have to earn it. It made me angry. It made me really more competitive than I probably even would have been. And so, listen, I don't think I get a scholarship to Stanford and become first team all Pac-10 without feeling that growing up, right? Feeling that people don't believe in you. People don't think you deserve what you've gotten. And so, and then there's the other side of it too, just that when you're dad runs a pro sports team there's so much criticism right you, you that business is a really hard one regardless of how well the team does and my dad's team in new york i mean if you look at their records they were a deep playoff runs every year nba finals but you're never immune from criticism and for and so you know we felt that too as a family and that's that's not pleasant yeah, it's not fun being uh, feeling misunderstood, and and your dad was misunderstood growing up for different reasons. You know, he couldn't speak yep. English very well, and and um, was trying to fit into a new culture. And then for you, it was almost like, well, this guy, you know, has all the advantages. Well, you still have to earn everything that you got on the court. And so I love how you turn that around into fuel, uh, mm -hmm. and, and and it made your competitive fire that much brighter. Um, Tell us about your dad going to Tennessee. That's another big adjustment. Uh, just going from high school to college is a big adjustment, but then going from New York to Tennessee. And then tell us a little bit about uh, the Ernie and Bernie show. Yeah, so back then, a lot of the best players from New York City, they went down south to play. You know, they called it the pipeline to the south. It was very common. And my dad, you know, the, the staff was, and I read about this in the book, they were, they almost lived in New York for a few months, like recruiting him and showing him the love. And 
Knoxville isn't too far from New York City. You know, so my grandparents like that. I actually learned through this process that the the coaching staff at Tennessee, they enlisted the help of the Jewish community in Knoxville, and there is one, to recruit not my dad, but my grandparents. The coaches said, Ernie doesn't, it's not really important to him, but it's really important to his parents. So they had the Hillel and the Jewish deli, like working my grandparents, like they really knew what they were doing. And, you know, my dad, you know, he felt really comfortable there. He had a chance to play right away, which I know was really important to him. And so went to Knoxville and a year later was joined by another New Yorker, Bernard King, uh, you know, from Brooklyn. And so my dad is you know, a white immigrant from Queens. Bernard King's a black man from Brooklyn. They went down to Knoxville and they became legends. I mean, they were called, like you said, the Ernie and Bernie show. They each averaged more than 25 points per game one year <laughs> on the same team. You know, and Bernard and my dad, like, and they were both literally super, superstars in college, but they made each other better. And that's such a cool, special thing. Because usually when you have great players, you know, they don't necessarily make other teammates better, let alone the other great player better. But Bernard and my dad just had this amazing partnership. And, you know, being having this cool story, both being New Yorkers, taking the SEC by storm, really special. And you mentioned DeBusher bringing my dad to the Knicks in 82. Bernard joined the Knicks a few, I think, weeks after my dad did. And so uh, they played in the NBA together for many years. Bernard lived up the street from us in New Jersey. I still call him Uncle B to this day. You know, my dad and him talk pretty much every month. Bernard texted me a month ago just to tell me he was proud of me for how well the book is doing. And so, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about basketball as a connector, right? And it doesn't care what language you speak, what color your skin is, what religion you are, what country you're from. It just brings people together. And my dad and Bernard are such a cool example of that. Like they're from the same city, but from much different places, you know, in their lives and much different backgrounds. But lifelong friends who built this amazing history together. So it's uh, it's really, really special and something I definitely write about in depth in the book. Yeah, what an un- unforgettable tandem they were. And uh, they'll be part of basketball history forever, college and, and just what they accomplished in the pros. Uh, did you have uh, did you have a tandem? <laughs> did you ever, uh, <laughs> was, what, what was your show called? Did you have a teammate that you really admired most or... You know, and I'm kind of curious, too, about your thoughts on just being a great teammate. Uh, you know, Phil and I work with a lot of teams and groups on leadership and teamwork. And so just your yeah. thoughts on those topics. I guess I would say the show was over after my dad. Like, the I show. never, there was never, never another version of it. I certainly played with guys who I respected, admired, who were incredible. You know, I was, even in high school, I had a, a player a year older than me named Joe Tucker, who was an all-state basketball player. He went to Bradley University, but then University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee led them to the Sweet 16. He w- So I wouldn't call us a dynamic duo in high school because he was better than me. He was a year older. He was so dominant. But, you know, I was kind of up and coming. But I played with a great player in high school, and then I became that great player. But, you know, at every level, you play with guys who you just respect and admire. And since teamwork it is the name of the game, and, and basketball is the, I th- it's the ultimate team sport. You know, I, I think that uh, – you know, some, I have some friends who play football, like some NFL players, and they say, no, football is the ultimate team sport. And listen, without getting into any arguments, but my perspective is that football is about coordination, but basketball is about cooperation. And I really mean that, right? Basketball, you're making decisions, every possession, you're dealing with issues, you're troubleshooting on the fly. And so it's all about how you communicate, how you, you disagree. You know, there's so many little parts of it. And to be a truly great teammate, to have a truly great teammate, it's a hard thing. It's, it's a really special thing. And that's why we've all watched teams where 
the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and teamwork is kind of that catalyst. You know, when you can work together, when it all makes sense, it's kind of a force multiplier. And so, yeah, I, I, I always tried my best to be a great teammate. I'm not sure I always succeeded, right? Because, you know, as an athlete, you always are, you're selfish in, in certain ways, but yeah, teamwork is, is such an important thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important, you know, to, it, not everyone can be the star, but you can be a, a, a star in your role uh, on the team. Um, what was the transition like for you going from high school? Because you were lighting up the court, right? I mean, you're, I think you averaged uh, 60, uh, over what, 60% of your, uh, you made 60% of your shots from the field in, in high school, which is, uh, that's better than I did at the free throw line when I played. <laughs> but um, you, know, you know what's funny about that, Jim? Yeah. My dad was this great, great scorer. And yeah, I did. I shot like 61% my senior year. And my dad said, you know what that means? That just means you didn't shoot enough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you should have shot that, more. So, yeah, he said, you, you, that means you didn't shoot enough, man. You should have shot more. But uh, yeah, I, I had a really, really nice high school career. Well, and it seems like that, you know, just both sides, you know, just in terms of offense and defense, it seems like you're, you just love the, the, and maybe it's the gritty side of you, you love defense and rebounding and battling, you know, like mauling the ball and battling for, for it. Um, yeah. Did I you, wish I were, I wish I were better at it, by the way, defense. I don't think anyone I played with or against would say that I was the, the greatest defender, but I tried, I, I really love to rebound. I did like to mix it up. I tried to play with hard and, and play physically. Like I learned, you know, from my dad. Absolutely. T- tell us a little bit about the transition to Stanford. I mean, listen, going from being, you know, the, one of the best players in the state and a top 100 player in the country, like, you know, you, every time you step on the court, you're one of the top players. Now when you go play in the Pac-10 at the time, everyone is that. You know, so you're, you're one of the guys again. And so big, big adjustment, you know, the physicality, the size. So in high school, I was a 6'6 shooting guard. You know, so I had big size and skills. But in, high, in college, that's kind of average, right? So you kind of have to recalibrate. And there was definitely a learning curve for me. I had a promising freshman year where I played and I contributed and I had some really nice moments. I helped us win a couple really big games as a freshman. We were a four seed in the NCAA tournament. You know, so nice, nice freshman year. Really struggled my sophomore year. And I'm honest about this in the book. I mean, mentally, you know, not, not achieving at the level that I wanted to. By the way, it's all connected to the story we talked about to start, which is my grand, my family being Holocaust survivors, my dad being a great player, right? All the, the history I carried, the pressure I felt, not performing that my sophomore year, I couldn't deal with it. I didn't have that maturity. And so I played on the number one team in the country. You know, we were, we started 26 and 0. We were a number one seed in the, in the NCAA tournament, but I was really struggling. And, um, and I, by the way, I missed a shot in the NCAAs that would have tied a game. And so we got upset and I missed the shot. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of, a lot of friction, a lot of heartbreak, but we were talking about perseverance, you know, work ethic, being, you know, chip on your shoulder, being disciplined. And so I put the time and work in that summer. And the following year, I was the most improved player in the country. I was a first team all conference player, you know, so that is my way to kind of, you know, persevere, overcome and kind of keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, some sports parents that were superstar athletes um, go the opposite direction. They put no pressure on their kids. Uh, some maybe put too much pressure on their kids. How did you and your dad find that balance? It was it was really my dad who found the balance, right? Because when you're a kid, you don't know any better. You're just you know, and everything your parents say is kind of gospel. So, like, I, I give my dad credit because he put no pressure on me. In fact, he was very explicit with me, saying don't play basketball if you don't want to, 
you know, find what you love to do, explore. My mom, of course, they both communicated that to me together, but they never put pressure on me. My dad, he guided me. He worked with me. We would talk about the game. He would challenge me. You know, he would say, I don't think you played hard. You know, of course, no one likes to hear that from your dad and we'd argue, but, you know, and then he'd say, man, did you play hard? You were dominant. You know, he was just a great supportive parent, but so he was there kind of as a thought partner and as a coach, but never expectations and I write this in my book, he would always kind of brag to his friends about me and my sister, but in the classroom, you know, he would talk about what what the kind of students we were, you know, and how hard we were. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't really, the pressure wasn't on the basketball side. And that probably made me want it even more. You know how it is. You can't, you can't tell a kid what to do. You know, if you tell them one thing, they go the opposite way. So yeah, he just really, him and my mom, they, they just supported me. Yeah, one thing I thought was really cool, just to rewind a little bit from the Stanford chapter when you were there, was that for you, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of kids might wait until junior or even senior year to decide where they're going to play, or maybe you know, a late scholarship offer comes through. But in your case, you kind of set your sights on Stanford as a twelve-year-old, and then you have this final AAU tournament in Vegas. LeBron's there, so that's where all the hype is. But you go out and you have this amazing final game and it just happens to be that, you know, a few days later, Coach Montgomery reaches out and and that kind of, you know, it, it closes out this six-year-plus odyssey for you. Talk a little bit about, you know, how unusual it might have been for a 12-year-old to say, I'm going to Stanford, you know, how on you factored into that, but then how you were able to kind of close out that particular chapter with this final game and your performance at that tournament. Yeah, you know, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. You know, and the game of basketball just did so much for my family. Of course, for my dad coming to America and my grandparents as Holocaust survivors getting to watch their son become an Olympic gold medalist for the United States. You know, this whole big story. And I think another kind of that thread continued into my life. And Stanford was a big part of that. And so my grandmother has lived in the Bay Area for 35 plus years. And we went to visit her and look at colleges with my older sister. And like you said, I was 12. And we visited Stanford's campus, and I, I became obsessed. <laughs> you know, you mentioned feel like you kind of wanted to go to Stanford when I was twelve. I was like, I didn't kind of want to go. Yeah, it's I was all in. All in. <laughs> I was all in, right? And you know, it, it's weird to say, but back then there wasn't the internet, and so I didn't really know much about. I knew they were. It was a good school, and they had a good program, but that's all I knew. And I think they were top five at the time. Amazing academics, beautiful weather, and I was like, oh, this. And most importantly, probably twenty-five minutes from my grandmother. You know, we were always so close, and. And so that just became my mission. And, and it was a long shot, by the way. I was just, you know, listen, I was a nice little player, but you're talking about big time, big time Division One college basketball. And, but I just kept pushing. And, I, you know, as I developed, they started recruiting me. And, I, you know, I go into this in the book and kind of how it happened. I had some timing. I had some luck. But you kind of – I became one of their top recruits. And I had played well, and I would really shown myself. But they, they hadn't offered me a scholarship yet. And I was – I remember talking to my dad right before this big tournament in Las Vegas. It was the biggest one of the summer. It's called Las Vegas, uh, the Adidas Big Time in Las Vegas. And I remember talking to my dad, just being like, is it ever going to happen? You know, they, they, like, I've done all I can and they still haven't, you know, they still don't want me. You know, they've recruited me, but they haven't offered me. I remember him telling me, like, just work, just put in the work. It'll all work out. And so we went to that tournament. And you said the last game, Phil, it was actually the first game, which I think makes it even cooler because. This is it, and, and and I was 
I was aware of how big this whole thing was. I was like, dude, it's Stanford or, or nothing at this point. And again, by the grace of the game, I think there's something like cosmic and spiritual about the role basketball has played in my family's life and bringing us together. And so in that first game, and keep in mind, this is high school, so no shot clock, 32-minute game, I had 45 points. <laughs> I'm like, listen, that's and, – and I write in the book, like, I was a scorer. So, you know, you kind of have a tally in your head. You, you know – but I kind of blacked out. I just was like the first play of the game, I caught it, and I, boom, I just shot it and made it. And then I was just, you know, I just kind of went about my business. And it's actually a really a commentary on performance. Because as we all know, when you find that state of flow, when your mind is separated from your actions, that's when you're natural and you're joyful and you really perform. And so it was my greatest, like, act of just being natural on a basketball court. And I had 45, and it got me to Stanford. And so I think... Listen, there was there's luck and skill and you know karma and all these things, but I'm not going to change it because it all worked out and I got where I wanted to go. Yeah, how often uh, flow states are fun, aren't they? Uh, unfortunately, oh, uh, uh, we're not in them as often as we'd like to be. But you know, I think a lot of athletes share with us that you know maybe five ten percent of the time they find a flow state. You know, the college and, and pro athletes. Um, did you have any other blackout moments like that, either during your pro career? We're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves right now, but in your pro career or in college or even in high school where it's like, I don't even remember what happened out there. You were, it's almost like the performance was giving you instead of you giving the performance. Uh, I'll tell you honestly, not like that. I, I've had, you listen, I, I played eight years professionally, so I've played in like a jillion games. So of course you're going to have great games. I also have really crappy games. And so mm -hmm. it goes both ways, but I had dominant performances, certainly in high school and college and in the pros. I mean, but, and there, when you say like five to 10% flow, like, I think that's right, right? Every one in every 10 games, you, you're really with it and it's natural and it's flowing and it's all clicking and those are really fun. And you think it, it sounds, it's so cliche, but you really do feel like you can fly. If you're on the basketball court and it's just all working for you and every decision you make is the right one, every move you make, it's the best feeling. But this was different. I mean, it was, it was out, when they say like out of body, that's what this was. And it was also out of mind. And you'll know from the book, like my mind was my worst enemy. And I think that's really common with athletes, you know, overanalyzing all. And, you know, the, some of those instincts are good up to a point, you know, where you motivate yourself and you have awareness, but those things hampered me a lot. But I just, it all went, it all went clear <laughs> that, that, that game. And, and there was really, I didn't, and I write this in the book, it's like, I didn't capture any data. It was just clean, and I just performed. You know, and so it, it, it's happened. It happened more in my career where I had really good performances and I felt amazing on the floor, but never quite like that. Yeah, you talk about the kind of mind struggle, and obviously that started a couple of times to manifest itself in physical ways. Can you talk a little bit about? the nervous tick that you had as a child that then resurfaced a bit later on, maybe during that, that difficult year you mentioned at Stanford and just what that kind of, um, you know, complicated part of the game was for you in some ways. Yeah. When I was a, a kid and listen, we're all wired certain ways. I'm naturally sensitive, which is a good quality. I care a lot. And so again, I, I own that about myself. I love that about myself, but you know, there's, there's other side to it. And so when I was very young, probably seven, eight years old, I developed a nervous tick in my eye, which is just, it was just like kind of a movement in my eye. And my mom took me to the doctor, you know, wanting to make sure everything was okay and everything was fine. But they said that it was a stress reaction. Because even at that very young age, I was putting pressure on myself and I knew 
I knew what basketball had done for my family. I knew that it would take my dad to start him from a really improbable place. And so even at that young age, I was internalizing all that. I really wanted it. And so, yeah, I had that nervous tick, which eventually went away. But in college at Sanford, when I was having that really poor sophomore season, it came back because I was feeling the weight, you know, and yeah, your body, when things are inside of you, they're going to come out one way or another, right? Maybe, maybe it's anger, maybe it's, sadness like things come out and I think for me that that emotional part manifested like you said physically in that in that nervous stick in my eye and so and I write again I'm very honest in the book that I would be at the free throw line and I couldn't control it and I would be embarrassed and mortified because it, it had control over me rather than the other way around but dealing you know relating it back to my family story and those values where my grandparents come to the United States without speaking English losing their son they just worked. They worked really hard. And my dad, you know, losing his brother, not speaking the language, becoming a basketball star, he just worked. And so for me, I just worked. You know, I, I had these things going on. And I remember my dad saying, just work. And so I did that. And you know, from the books, I write very honestly about what I did after that really poor year. But I just worked. And uh, that nervous tick went away. And it's actually never come back since then. And uh, yeah, it was, I had more you know success on the court but it was really because i put the time in and that it kind of like you know made me at peace yeah you've also said how you use certain techniques like meditation and a couple of other things to to kind of tame some of those emotions if they start to come up again even if it doesn't get to the point of that that tick coming back can you talk to us a little bit about some of those coping techniques and how that's kind of progressed for you over the years yeah, absolutely. Meditation was a big one. And, you know, there's like the emotional side, then there's the mental side. And I, I think that there's a distinction there, you know, because my mind, again, would be my worst enemy at times during my career. And so when I was playing professionally, I just, you know, I just couldn't find my rhythm. I was second guessing. I was just overthinking. And it was my mom who said, you know, you should read up a little bit about mindfulness. She knows I'm inquisitive and I like to understand things. So first things first, she said, read about it, understand it. But then practice it. And, and I did both those things. I, the more I read, the more I started to understand it. Then I started to meditate. And it gave me, it was centering, right? And, and that's the whole point. But I think understanding the power of the present moment, not creating a future time in your mind that is then just filled with tension, like the gap between the present moment and the future moment, there's just tension there. Understanding that, understanding how your mind just does that. And you don't need to judge yourself for it. It's natural. But just... How do, you, how do you tame your mind rather than the other way around? Understanding those things and then the meditation practice allowing you to gain a sense of control over it. That was really important for me. And so I, I think, you know, I, I talk about it in the book. I do think it, it potentially saved, definitely elongated my pro career just because I was, I was having some struggles and it, it, it calmed me down and just let, let me to play, let me play a little more naturally. That's amazing how uh, the, our toughest opponent is always ourself. Um, you know, and, and, you know, if we can't win the little battles inside, then it's hard to win the game on the outside. Um, did you ever have a sports psychologist come to, you know, either at Stanford or, uh, to one of your pro teams and give a talk, anything like that? Or was, you know, this was a few years ago, it's become a lot more sexier now, but, um, and, and a lot more widespread in the use of sports psychology, but any experience with the field of sports psychology? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. I was just going to interject and mention it. Um, I, I'm proud to say I was an early adopter because you're right. Back back then, right, I played college basketball 2002 to 2006. 
I'm actually really proud of how how much knowledge there is and awareness about the importance of the mental side and it's there's no stigma around it right you want that performance to match your physical performance it wasn't like that back then but I knew that about myself that I needed to work on that part of it so when I played at Stanford I did work with someone and I read about it in the book you know I would I remember one of the things we did is this this person encouraged me before games to write a script about what you wanted to happen, how you wanted to feel, you know, and I, and I detailed this a little bit in the book and that helped me. And, and so I did work with someone when I was at Stanford, I worked with a different person when I was a pro, you know? So, uh, at phases throughout my career, I, I, I was seeking help. I received it and it did help. You know, that's why I, I tell people who run programs, coaches, players, use everything at your disposal. We spend so much time lifting weights. So we have big biceps and we run really fast, but, any athlete knows that it happens upstairs. You know, the game is mental. So I st- we're still probably not there, right, in the proportion that we work out physically versus mentally. I mean, the mental side is so important. We need to exercise those muscles and work on ourselves. Yeah, did did Coach Montgomery teach teach the, you and, and the team as a whole anything about keeping the game simple or trying to slow things down in fast moments or anything just – philosophy-wise in, in either lessons or examples that, that he and the rest of the staff shared? They did to a point. I wouldn't, it wasn't the type of staff where it was like Phil Jackson's Zen master, you know, or some, some, it wasn't that type of program. But uh, listen, Coach Montgomery, who's who I played for in college my first few years, an incredible college basketball coach. Like I said, we were the number one team in the country and we had one NBA player. So like that would I mean, he, the, the proof is in the pudding. And so tactically exceptional definitely our coaches would talk to us and help us through, but you know, that wasn't like the focal point of the program. So I, I kind of, I got that help externally. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the book you write about later in your career and we'll rewind a little bit in a minute. So as Jim said, we don't skip ahead too much, but it, but it really hit home to me as I was rereading the book for the second time. And, um, you talked about as, as your career was in in its fourth season in Israel, and obviously you know the knee was still bothering you and this kind of thing, and you you, you got to this point where you realized that you were going to call time on on your your pro career, and and what you wrote was really really impactful, which was the stress of letting go of basketball was attacking me from the inside. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how that manifested itself, and then just you know the the kind of transitions that we all face in life, and kind of letting one part of our, uh, ourselves die is probably a too strong a word, but having to let go of it, and then you know maybe fearing or not knowing what's next, and just what was going through your head during that period? Yeah, sure. It was my fourth year in Israel, my eighth year professionally, and actually, so I suffered a really bad knee injury in college. I tore my ACL. I'm actually proud to say that I never had knee problems again after my rehab, but my body in general, like I just, you know, I had an ankle thing, I had a back thing. And so I was just slowing down. But more than that, it was my heart. You know, my my heart just wasn't in it anymore. And I was, you know, playing internationally, having to leave my family every year, you know, it it took a toll on me. And yeah, during the first week of practice, I remember calling my dad and just saying, I'm done. You know, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this season, but I don't think I have another one in me. And yeah, you, it, there is a mourning process. There is. And, and particularly for me, with all that basketball has meant to me, has meant to my family. And again, we go back to the Holocaust, right? My grandparents survived the Holocaust. They spent more than a decade under communism, which was brutal. I mean, the brutality of communism 
fighting for a better life, fleeing, coming to the United States. My uncle passes away, and here comes the game of basketball for my dad, and it really changed everything, right? So that's the history I'm carrying. So for all these reasons, this has meant so, so much to me. And so letting go was so hard. And the, what, the quote you mentioned attacking me from the inside, I was sick four times in the last like six weeks of, of my career different things happening. But I remember telling my wife, like, it's just so overpowering. Like the, the, what I'm feeling is like my body is just sounding alarm bells. And I literally went from the hospital to one of my last games and I was okay. Like I had, a, I had to get an IV, a fluid IV, but like there was just something so visceral about letting go. And, and, you know, from the book, like my, my career was kind of dramatic in a lot of different ways, but it came, my career came down to the last possession of my last game where my team in Israel had a chance to be relegated. So like the, the, the game never let me kind of rest and relax. And the, I, my, our opponents missed a shot at the buzzer. My team won and our fans rushed the floor. It was like a big thing and my career was over. And I just put my hands on top of my head and started crying. And I remember I, I went to the stands cause my, my wife was there. She was crying also. And I just buried my head in her shoulder and, it's funny looking back because I'm six foot six. My wife is five foot one and she was kind of holding me like a baby, right? Like it was just, it just like poured out of me. And listen, you devote your, your life to something, you know, you work, you know what it did for your family. Like those are all healthy, you know, healthy to let it out type of emotions. But yeah, it was, it was overwhelming and it definitely took time to mourn it. And I didn't play basketball for a year and although I did work at the NBA, so I don't want to make any illusions that I like abandoned the game, but yeah, that's, I mean, letting go is hard. Letting go is really hard. Yeah. It's uh, sometimes it's, it's realizing that it's already gone, <laughs> you know, before right, you right. letting go, but um, any uh, big announcements today for us in terms of a Tom Brady comeback for you in, in basketball, maybe. <laughs> I, I was waiting for this podcast to announce it because I know the public was really, <laughs> no, yeah. believe me, yeah. no, no one wants that. No one wants to see that. I think we're going to let Sleeping Dogs lie. Okay. Tell, uh, it's not the, you know, your favorite topic or any athlete's favorite topic, but, uh, you know, uh, sports, you know, not easy on the body, is it? And um, tell us a little bit about uh, about the injury. You were lighting up uh, the the nation and scoring. I think, uh, you know, Brandon Roy, Nate Robinson, Channing Fry were all looking up at you at that point, um, you know, in, in terms of the scoring list, which was really, I mean, there was a lot of killers out there that you were, yep. you know, just playing so well. And then the injury happened. Tell us about the ACL recovery. Uh, I've uh, when I was working at uh, Arizona State University in sports medicine and counseling services, um, you know that really hit home to me in terms of man. You know, I was working with people that had you know maybe a second or third career ACL injury. Um, you know, you know maybe a soccer player, or, you know, tennis player, those kind of things. Uh, tell us about dealing with the injury. That's uh, it, it, you know the the inju injuries can you know you could use that that it's either wasted time or time well spent in terms of what you do with it. But um, tell us a little bit about the mental emotional toll of that. It can be a really cold world when you're out injured. Yeah, it, it, it can be. It was, and yeah, to your point. So I was the second leading scorer in the Pac-10. So the only person that wasn't looking up to me was Arizona State's Ike Diagu, who I know you you worked with. Right, Ike was yeah. the leading scorer in the conference. I was second, and it was my moment. You know, I had gone from averaging 3.4 points per game as a sophomore to 18 points per game as a junior. I was averaging five and a half rebounds from the guard position. Like, it was happening for me. And with this whole history, again, the Holocaust, all these things, the parents booing me at, at summer camp, you know, like, it had happened for me finally. And then 
uh, a home game against Cal on national television, Tiger Woods sitting courtside. This is how injuries happen. You know, one wrong step. And I was having a great game. I had 16 points very early in the second half. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting 30 at least. You know, it's happening. It's my moment. And wrong step, wrong time, tore my ACL. And, you know, it happens that fast. And you talk about perspective, right? It changes everything in that moment because you realize, oh, like, I've been fighting for this for my whole life. And in a second, it all changed. And it really, you don't abandon, of course, your goals. And I didn't. But it, it's such a it's such a moment to reflect after the fact to reflect upon you know what what it's all about you know and I certainly did that and my grandmother because she lives close to Stanford she was at every home game I played and so of course when I first hurt myself I knew something really bad had happened I was kind of rolling around on the ground panicking when I came to my senses I realized my grandma was kneeling down next to me rubbing my head you know which is really it's symbolic because she was there for me but also look at what she went through in her life right like basketball is wins and losses she went, what she went through was life and death, you know, so even having dinner with her that night, I remember thinking, you know, we rebuild, you know, you have to, you have to, again, use the word mourn, you have to mourn what happens, you have to acknowledge it, it was hard, but you have to keep going, and I've, I have the best examples of that in my family, right, with my grandparents, with my dad, and that's what I tried to do, but to your point, it is lonely, it is hard, it, it sucks, <laughs> like, you know, when you're, you're on that trajectory, and then you have such a catastrophic injury, it's just a plummet down, you know, you can't walk, like you have to rebuild and that's really hard. And so, yeah, mentally, physically, it takes a lot, but I'm lucky that I had a great support system to help, help me through that. Yeah. Mom, what a uh, grandma, what a superstar. <laughs> She's on the court. <laughs> oh yeah. And I write in the book, like I have no idea how she got down there so fast, which is true. Like as soon as I, I, I kind of realized what's happening, she's there. And like, that's all you need to know about her. Right. She was there. Like as, as soon as I opened my eyes, she was there. Was she an athlete too? It sounds like, you know, on your dad's, your, uh, your paternal side of the family is lights out in terms of athleticism, right? I mean, is, was she, did she play, I, I know it was a different time period in a different locate, you know, different place, but was, was she a big athlete or not necessarily? You know, so my grandma grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family where girls and women, they didn't really play sports yeah. much. And okay. my grandmother's kind of adolescence was interrupted by the Holocaust. You know, and she, she wasn't able to go to school. And by the way, like, that's something that I was carried with me, too. And I mentioned, like, the academic side of it, going to Stanford and being an academic All-American there. Like, I'm proud of those things. But it's because my grandma loved to learn and didn't get the chance to go to school. You know, so for me to have opportunities to get an education, I wanted to make the most of that, those things. You know what I mean? And so she wasn't able to get her education. She really wasn't able to explore her interests, sports being one of them. But uh, she... I, I think she's she's a superhero to me. So if I envision her playing sports, I see her dominating. So I want to say I'm sure she'd be amazing, you know. But I don't think we have any real evidence for that. Yeah, but the same kind of grit that um, athletes show, like I love in the book how you mentioned that, you know, as your dad is becoming one of the best players in in the city in the state, that your grandparents are grinding away. You know, these long, long days um, at their store. Can you talk a little bit about? about that part of the chapter and again how she she showed a champion's work work ethic as did your grandfather in, in the business that they built and uh why it wasn't until the coach literally says uh you gotta see this kid because i'm not sure you know what's going on here yeah so my grand does they have a chance to come to america to build a life for themselves and so they opened up a fabric store in the bronx and they they worked you know, my grandma still to this day talks about my grandfather's just work ethic. 
and you know seven days a week she would work six days a week and they just built this amazing store you know they sold fabrics they built they built a life and nothing could deter them from that you know that was that was kind of what what they were about and of course loving their family supporting my dad they were the best parents but they they wanted to build a life here and so to the story that you just mentioned it wasn't until my dad was a junior in high school that they even saw him play basketball they knew that it was something he was doing and by the way by this time he was already one of the best players in new york city but they didn't even know what that meant right they didn't grow up with like the the university system or professional sports they were holocaust survivors immigrants in new york city trying to build a life so that's what they were doing they got a call at their fabric store for my dad's high school coach and he said you know my grandma answers and mrs grunfeld you need to see your son play basketball. And so the reason they hadn't been is because they would have had to close their store early because my dad's games were in the afternoon. So they never would do that, you know? So the next week they did close their store early to see him play, but not too early. And so when they got to the gym, it was already full and the game had started. And so the usher at the door said, we can't let you in. The gym is full and their English wasn't good. So my grandfather tried to convince the usher said, you know, parents of player, uh, guests of coach, but they said, listen, there's nothing we could do. And my grandma, she kind of like summoned up all her courage. She said, our son is Ernie Grunfeld. She didn't even know if that meant anything. She just said, that, you know, that's our son. And the usher, his eyes lit up. He said, why didn't you say so? You know, and he swung the door open and brought them into the gym. And uh, my grandma still tells the story that my grandpa looked around the court. You know, he'd never seen my dad, as I mentioned. And he grabbed my, my grandma. He said, well, if, if, he's, if Ernie's so good, why isn't he playing? And my grandma kind of looked shocked. She said, look right there, that's Ernie. And she pointed to the middle of the floor. My, and it's so symbolic, right? My grandfather literally couldn't recognize my dad. He had transformed like from this at-risk immigrant youth to like this big, powerful person on the basketball court. And my grandpa used to make my dad come to their fabric store to work on weekends. And on the court after that game, he said to him, you never come to the store again. Just, just focus on basketball. We'll take care of the rest. And so, yeah, that was, that was the start of it all. Yeah, do you do you, you mentioned a, a a couple of pretty profound times when maybe you were you were down on yourself um, after a hard game, and maybe your your dad shared similar advice that he'd either heard from or just seen embodied by your grandparents. What what would your your dad tell you if if you got down on yourself or you were bummed out because you went you know two and twelve for a game and you know a couple of games leading up you maybe made most of your shots, but uh, what how did that kind of uh, you know, the hard work ethic, but also the don't get down on yourself mentality kind of uh, come through all the way down to your generation? I think for my dad, it was simplifying things, you know, and kind of drilling it down to what was what's in your control. And that's work. You know, so it actually, it does kind of come back to work in a sense. But, but through work, you can maintain kind of a clarity of mind, perspective, and attitude because, and, and I was so analytical, I would really get down on myself. I would, you know, consider what would have been and should have been. And he would just say, control your own actions. You know, whatever's in your control, you know, worry about that. You know, so he would always kind of encourage me, don't overthink it, let it go. Just put the time in. You know, if you put the time in, that's all you can control. So actually your performance is determined beforehand. You put the work in. Then whatever happens, happens. You may be awesome. You may be not very good at all. Like that's going to be what it's going to be. But like, it's really, you put the time in, and then once you lace them up, it's already done. You'll just see kind of where, where the results net out on that particular day. So he kind of encouraged me in that way. 
it was always an uphill battle for me, as I'm honest about in the book. I think there were some times where I did that really, really well. And when I, when I hit that flow, when I was rolling at Stanford, like I was good at it. When I was struggling, I wasn't as good at it. But I think that's, that was always his perspective is, you know, control your own actions and just and put the time in. It, it's really deep and powerful advice because I think most of us worry about the reward instead of just doing the work. And, and, you know, and, and doing the work will lead to the reward um, if you honor the work properly. I think so. And that's why I'm so passionate about the mental side of it. And when you're young and you're motivated and you don't have the same type of maturity, it's hard. And I was all those things, right? So I, I, it would have been hard for me to really understand that. But when I talk to kids now and young players, I try to impress that upon them, right? Because you have so many more opportunities than you think. There's so much more time. If you just, yeah, if you put the work in, really, really do all you can and just let, let the data set be created. You know, like, like there's going to be some really great ones. There's going to be some really crappy ones, but like just let go and, and let the data come in, you know, and, and don't try to control it. Just put the work in and then let it happen. Yeah. NBA is a great acronym for next best action. Just, you know, whatever yeah. happened on the last play, what's the next best action? Uh, how good were you at letting go of uh, missed shots during a game or or mistakes during a game where you're able to nail those to the floor and keep going? Or uh, the beauty of basketball, though, is you kind of have to keep going, <laughs> you know, like yeah. versus other sports. But yeah, was that that's was that a, a separate challenge for you is in the moment letting go? It, it was. I mean, I, I I don't think I was particularly good at that. Things would stay with me. But I was the type, like, if I was good, I was really good. And if I was bad, I was really bad. So in times when I was rolling, I, I was really good at that because I was so confident that I just, like, didn't care about anything. And, and I was just on a mission, you know. So when I, when I was locked in, I was really good at it. But when I was struggling, I was very poor at it. It would... I would remember it. It would impact my performance. I think that's why my sophomore year, I was I performed so poorly because you know I, I wasn't doing well and it compounded and I and I couldn't I couldn't let go of it. But then, contrastly, my junior year, I think that's why I played so well because I was just I was just natural. And if I missed five shots, I was like, well, the sixth one's obviously going in. No, I, I had that in me, but the, the the switch would turn on and off. That's a shooter's mindset. You miss your first five. I'm going to make my next five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would, I wish I had it all the time. I think that's one of the greatest things you could have as a basketball player. I didn't have it, but I, I would have, when I did have it, it was really potent. And then the results showed, but I didn't have it all the time. How, how about uh, conversely in terms of, you know, when you were playing well, would you give yourself credit where credit was due or was that hard? A lot of times, you know, uh, high performers tend to, you know, have that, which makes them a champion, but, you know, never good enough, always could have done better. But I do think it's important to celebrate what you want to see happen more often. Uh, was that hard for you as well? It was. I wish, you know, I would have smelled the roses a little bit more. And, you know, when you're sitting in those special moments, my, you know how it is, like, you always want to push, you never want to be satisfied. And I was very much like that. And it's not that I wouldn't acknowledge that what was happening. I wouldn't say like, oh, I didn't play well. I would say like, no, I was, I was really good that game. But what's next? You know, just like stay focused. Don't, don't read your press clippings because that's the first step towards it all going away. You know, and I write about it in the book very honestly where like I, I was maniacal my junior year at Stanford like because it was so special for me. Like my dreams were coming true and I was just terrified that – it would go away. And I didn't read, I didn't enjoy it for one second. It was just like, I kept pushing and it did go away in a sense, but it was from an injury, you know? And so looking back, 
yeah, I wish I would have like acknowledged it and, and felt it how awesome that was, what I was, what I was doing, what I was going through. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you talk about kind of your dad's message of, you know, trust your training and tr- put confidence in the work that you put in. And um, we talked before about, you know, how this was partly founded in your, your really grueling physical preparation between seasons at, at Stanford. Can you take us inside the, the mindset challenge of, of those workouts and working with that particular coach? Yeah, and I write about in the book with my trainer, Frank, who's gained notoriety since he worked with me for training many big NBA stars. And, you know, he trained people for the military originally, and it kind of shows. It's very, it's extreme. It's really rigorous, and you really have to want it. And I did want it, and I was so motivated that I would, you know, if someone would push me, I would willing to be pushed very hard. And Frank certainly did that, definitely physically, right? Sprinting sand hills and carrying buckets of sand and pulling sleds of people like we did all sorts of really grueling physical work, but it was more mental. It was just him challenging me and and pushing the limits of what I thought I was capable of and the voice in my head, how much control I really had over that. And and I tell these stories in the book, you know, of, of him making me do these grueling workouts. And as soon as it's over, he would extend it 15 minutes, you know, and I would be ready to choke him. I would curse at him. And he'd say, he would just say, sir, another 15 minutes, please. And, he calls every guy, sir, by the way, and he wears a fisherman's hat and sunglasses. He's a unique person, but you know, I would, I would do the 15 minutes and then when I would be done, he'd be like, see, you didn't think you could now, you know, now what's next, you know, and that, that aperture just kept widening, you know, and he would keep pushing me by the way. That's why he's a genius. He would also pull me back. There were times where we would walk in the gym and, and I'd be, I remember this when I was lacing up my shoes to do this really rigorous basketball workout. And I was probably complaining because we'd done so much. And he sent something in me, he said, you know what? So we're done today. And he's like, no, get yourself. We're done. Well, we, there's another, tomorrow's another day. So like as hard as he pushed me, he knew when to pull me back, but we definitely did things that like tested every part of me. But he always says that your mind will give out before your body. You know, and when I was, and he, he would say, sir, I know you're not going to quit. I know for one, one thing is for sure. You're not going to quit. You know, and I'd be on sand hills running and, and I would, you know, and he'd say, I know you're not going to quit. And he's right. I didn't, you know, and every time I wouldn't, it would just grow, grow more and more. And so by the time I got back to Stanford for my junior year and I read, I was hardened physically and mentally, you know, so I mean, the competition at this point to me was routine and it was easy. And I like, I wanted it cause I had done more. And, and to my, to my parents, my dad, you know, that lesson of like, just put the work in the, the story had already been written, you know, now it was just time to put pen to paper. So when I, when I stepped foot on the court, I was, that's why I think I performed so well. Cause it was, it was done already. Yeah, absolutely. Um, once you you mentioned with the injury, obviously the kind of mourning period of, well, I'm on this streak now, and you're you're starting to eye potential NBA opportunities, and um, you know that, then it all comes crashing down quite literally as you you take this misstep on a fast break. But you know, once to your credit, once you you had kind of licked your wounds a little bit, you got right back after it, right? So talk a little bit about that mentality of bouncing back quite literally and and coming back strong and healed and how that then carried into the next chapter for you. Yeah, the, the injury was, it was so hard. It was hard physically, it was hard mentally, it was really hard emotionally, but to our prior conversation, you have to keep pushing, you have to keep working, you have to keep believing. You know, and again, I had this great support system of my parents, my sister, my grandma, Frank, all these people were kind of supporting me. And so I really, after I kind of mourned it and came to terms like, okay, this happened, I quickly pivoted to saying, all right, time to get to work. 
Like what's in your control to my, to what my dad would say, what's in your control, discipline, work. So I, I remember talking to our trainer at Stanford. I said, listen, we're going to go hard at this. Okay. Are you with me? And he was with me. And I thanked him in, in the acknowledgments of my book for that. And that's like, you know, 20 years ago now or 15 years ago, but I thanked him for that. Cause I said, listen, we're, we're going to push. And that's what we did. And just keeping the same level of discipline, working as hard as I possibly could, but not overworking. Cause I, you know, I tried to learn and educate myself about injuries and, there's been many athletes who are motivated and, and like I was, but you push it too hard and then you have a bad outcome. And I, I wanted to guard against that. So tried to learn and say, hey, we're going to push it as hard as we possibly can, but be really disciplined and safe. And so, yeah, just tried to apply the same values that, you know, from my family, you know, the, the hope, the belief, the work and uh, all those things. And listen, I, I had a different trajectory for my career. I thought I would be a 10 year NBA player. I ended up being an eight year overseas player, but these, we all have our own journeys, you know, and I wouldn't change it because this, this is my journey. And so I'm, I'm proud of, of kind of coming back from the injury. And, you know, in my book, when I, when I said to my dad that I'm done, you know, my, my last year in Israel, I said, I'm done. And I write, he, he, the first thing he said to me was, you know what, man, so few people could have come back from that injury the way you did. You know, that was the first thing he said. And that meant so much to me and still does because that was such a hard thing. But I, I did come back from it, you know, and I am proud of that. Yeah, that uh, shows how how badly you did want it. Um, uh, uh, to you know the love of the game and continuing to play at such a high level. Uh, were you a big visualization guy? You know, during your recovery from injury, in terms of picturing yourself back out on the court with your teammates, or your you know your your knee healing and returning to normal, or just working on you know technique and those kind of things. I tried to be. I think I I wish I were better at it throughout because my dad visualized the player. And he would always tell me, even as a youngster, like, hey, visualize, see the ball go through, see the ball go through. Uh, there were times where I was struggling so bad that I would try to see the ball go through and it would miss. <laughs> like, my brain couldn't, like, ha- like, it had hacked it, you know? And so, like, that, those are real mental struggles. And so, but, yes, I, I did, when I was hurt, try to, you know, see, see the ball going through, see myself mm-hmm. coming back. I believed in the power of visualization. And I always tried it. I just wish I were better at it when I was playing. Yeah, it takes, definitely takes work in practice. I remember one Arizona State University basketball player during the time you were playing at Stanford, I said, uh, you know, close your eyes, picture yourself dribbling the ball. And he said, I can't. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, when I picture myself dribbling the ball, it sticks to the court. <laughs> and so, you know, we, but the more he worked on it, the more controllability he got from it. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a, a, a skill to develop. What, what was your self-talk like uh, when you were playing well versus when you weren't playing well on the court? Oh man, it, it was, there was such a Delta between those two things. And I think it shows in my performance, like how good I was and how bad I was. Cause I mean, I, I had confidence when it was going well. I mean, I was brash. I was, you know, and it was basically like, first of all, there was always this like underdog mentality. So like they, like they still don't believe in you. And I write this in the book. They still don't believe you still have to show them, but also like no one can guard you. Like, no, like, you know, so there was just that, that really extreme confidence and motivation kind of combined together. You know, they don't believe in you. They want no part of you. They're going to, they're going to see, you know, there was all that really intense talk. Oh man, when it wasn't going well, it was, it was dark. (laughs) It was dark. I mean, I, I talk about like passing up open shots because that self-talk was, uh Oh, like you don't want, like you you don't want to miss this one or, or you're just getting in your head and, and not believing, or you don't want to go in the game, things like that. And, those are really, those are dark places. They're sad places, but they're much more common than you would think, right? And so I think 
that's what we're talking about earlier about it. I'm happy that now there's kind of, it's not a black box anymore. Athletes have talked about mental health struggles on and off the court, but certainly like the, the struggles that go with being an athlete. And I don't think there's any great athlete. And I don't mean like I was a good college basketball player. I'm talking about like the great, great ones, like your LeBron James and others who haven't had their own issues, right? In, in different types of ways, right? These are things mentally, every athlete is affected in some way, you know? And so I think it's really healthy to talk about those challenges and try to work through them. Yeah, and ID them as normal and to be expected. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, versus something to be ashamed about. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, early on in my career, I had a, a, a top college student athlete uh, you know, come into my office and say, you know, there's something really wrong with me. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, I get nervous before games. <laughs> like, right. You know, and, but, and I said, oh, so do you all your teammates. And he's like, well, how do you know that? Cause I talked to all of them, you know, and it wasn't anything breaking confidentiality, but he was just so, he's like, really, I'm not the only one. And, you know, and, and, and in fact, we looked at it as, wait a minute, what does this say that's cool and awesome about you? It shows that you care. It shows that, right. you know, you want to play your best. It shows that you have high standards. And I wanted him to be proud of being nervous before a game instead of being ashamed of it. Uh, so it shows how far we've come in just the last 10, 15 years. Right. Yeah. Speaking of um, mindset challenges, what was the biggest challenge from the mental side when you, you said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this book, you commit to it? And then the real work begins. I think I was well prepared because of my basketball career, you know, from knowing like what it was like to really set a goal to sacrifice for it. And so I woke up at 6.02 AM every day for eight months to write my first draft. That was after a year and a half of research. Now that was all. And my wife told me when I was done with that first draft, how proud of me she was, which I appreciated. But I told her really all I did was I had the discipline to get up every morning and write. And that came from basketball, where I was used to that, right? So uh, that being said, it was not easy. This is a gru- – like writing a book, as you know, it's, it's grueling. Jim, too, right? You've written it's, – it's grueling, right? And f- physically, mentally, emotionally, particularly for my story, where, like, I'm shedding tears of writing about these really deep moments, it was hard. And there's also moments of self-doubt. You know, I, I believe that I could do it. I had done a lot of writing over the course of my life, and I had contributing writing positions to several – websites and other other outlets when I was playing so I believed I could do it but there were moments where I was like oh I don't know will anyone care is it right you know but similarly to how it was an athlete you just have to put the work in lean on your lean on your support system keep pushing through and so that's what I did and people have asked me like did the book turn out exactly how you had wanted it to and I don't think I could have told you exactly what I wanted at that time but it it is that you know but it, it, it kind of speaks to like, you just have to ha- have hope and have faith and keep pushing. Yeah. Any thoughts about uh, book number two, not getting, uh, putting uh, too many expectations or pressure on you. And uh, I'm, I'm a big uh, a fan of authors. Uh, Phil's a true author. <laughs> I just, you know, like jotting ideas down and, and, and you are too, Dan. And, and I've read that you love journaling for as a kid, right. And, and, or at least growing, you know, later on in life, you loved always writing and journaling and uh, always, but, yeah, so that definitely was putting in the work too. But uh, yeah, tell us about uh, we we need to have a book about grandmas. You know, maybe a, maybe <laughs> a, maybe a, a a full full book about grandma. But yeah, tell us about uh, current writing projects and goals with that. I've always loved to write. To your point, like, and I was known like kind of publicly as a basketball player. But uh, I would come home from my practices and write stories and poems. That's when I was a little kid. And in college, I was writing. And in the prose I was writing. So it's just something I love to do. 
I'd love to write another book. And I think I will. There'll never be another one like this. This is, this is my soul on a page. This is my family story, you know? And so this isn't so deep, deep in my heart, but there are other stories that I'd like to tell. There are other things that interest me. And so, yeah, I, I, I plan on writing another one. I don't think it'll be anytime too soon because this book has gotten a really great response. We're having conversations about adapting it in other forms, which would be really exciting. And because this is my family, this is my grandparents and my dad and all they overcame, I want to give this every shot in the world to, to get out there. And to, so I'm definitely focused on this for now, but there will be another, another time when uh, I, I start to get after it again. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Love it. Yeah. One of the, the things that you wrote um, in the book that I thought was really just a great way to, to sum up your relationship with your dad through the game of basketball was that at certain times you thought, man, like I had, I haven't measured up to him on the court and what he achieved. And yet he was able to dispel that or put that in a new light for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, just your own perception and having those kind of thoughts and then what he was able to say, but wait a second, like, have you thought about, you know, the all American status, for example, and, and, you know, what you've been able to do with the family story and just that kind of, you know, that, that seemed to me to bring a lot of things about your relationship full circle. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like my, I had the best dad in the world. I'm so lucky. He never put any pressure on me. And it, it's more the, the expectations I felt from other people and that I internalize inside of me, right? And so, yeah, I, I write in the book about, you know, I averaged three and a half points per game as a sophomore in college. My dad averaged 23 and a half points per game, you know? So it's like, it's hard to escape that. And I, I remember even like journalists, you know, at, when I was at Stanford would ask me about that, you know? And, and so it's just, it's something that you, you can't really escape. And and so, but you never think about, and I, of course, I wasn't a parent then, which I am now, and you, you don't think about what a, what a parent is thinking. And unbeknownst to me, my dad, he couldn't have cared less how many points I was averaging. And my family couldn't care less. And really, my friends couldn't either. It was about what kind of person are you? How are you treating people? What kind of work are you putting in? You know, and so, and I know that now, and I started to realize that, you know, as my pro career kind of drew t towards the end, that you know, basketball wasn't who I was. It was just a part of who I was. But the what you said is, and seriously, this came from the book because I, I interviewed my dad so much. We had some really meaningful conversations. And and we talked about kind of some of the things I wrote about, you know, not measuring up at these certain times and, and not having that same type of career. And he said, you know, I envy you because look what you did. Like he said, I was, a, I, was a, I had a really good basketball career. Said so you had a you had an excellent career yourself, but you were also an academic all American, and you wrote a book. You know, he so and you went to Stanford Business School. You know, so he was kind of saying, he's like, I actually envy you. And so he said, I would look at it exactly the other way, where you think you didn't measure up. I haven't measured up to what you did, but I'm proud of that. You know, I'm proud of you, and I don't. But so it just was this reframing shows what an amazing guy, what an amazing dad he is. And you know, it, yeah, I think it's just a good lesson that the way that the reason you think the things pe you think people might be looking for aren't actually those things, you know? And so I, I learned that over the course of my life and career, but my dad really helped kind of hammer that home. I was trying to think of a better tandem than the Ernie and Bernie show. And I think we got the Danny and Ernie show. This is, there you go. What a, what a, <laughs> no, but seriously, what a great teammate you have been to your dad and your dad has been to you and the, and the leadership that your dad has provided for you. Um, again, like we're talking early, you know, several years ago before 
you know, some of this common knowledge about being a great sports parent, you know, uh, and, and, and how not to put too many expectations on your child, especially, you know, in comparison to the father or the mother. And so really impressive. Um, what a, you know, incredible family story of, of great teamwork. My, my dad is wise beyond, beyond his years when it comes to things like that. You know, he had this incredible 30-year career as an NBA executive, and there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Like, all fans and public, you see decisions and you see re- wins-loss records, but I got to see kind of the inside look. And my dad has a natural sense of what people need, and he has this really great emotional intelligence, and I think that, that, you, that was displayed at how he parented. Those are just instincts. You know, he just kind of had a sense of what would work for me. And so he always did, and my, my sister as well. And so he always did that. I'm so grateful and lucky for those things. And yeah, it's just an incredible dad, an incredible, you know, like partner as I kind of develop and I, as I've developed. Yeah, definitely. Another part in that same section, Dan, that um, again, really stood out to me was that you wrote, it's fine to, st- to strive for greatness, but as on you has shown, it's far more lasting to take pride in your goodness. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's the truth. Cause then you know, from the story, it's all about me pushing and wanting to be a great player and, and even wanting to be great in the classroom, which, you know, I had success there too, but there's still pressure and there's angst and, you know, you push hard and you want those things, but that's not, that stuff's not the lasting stuff. What really matters is like I said, your goodness. How do you treat people? What do people say about you? No one is going to say, oh, Dan was you know, an all-conference player at Stanford his junior year. Like, great. And they're not going to say Ernie was this, you know, four-time first-team All-SEC, which he was. That's amazing, right? He graduated as the second-leading scorer in the history of the SEC, and to this day, he's the fifth-leading scorer in the history of the SEC. That's an incredible basketball career. But that's not what people are going to be talking about, about you, who you are. How do you treat people? How do people feel when they're around you? What did you do for others? You know, what is your fa- – how, how are you as a family person, Right your goodness. And, and my grandmother is, is the best example of that, right? Just being this incredible person, despite all she'd been through in her life, you know? So yeah, it's not about striving for greatness. That's good to a point and you should have goals, but it's really about taking pride in your goodness. Well, this has been really profound, Dan. Thank you so much for, for not just bearing your soul in the book and on the page, but but in this interview. Um, can you remind people what the book's called, where they can find it, and, and where they can follow along as, as your story and your family's story continues? Uh, absolutely. So by the grace of the game, uh, it's you can get it on Amazon. It's available where books are sold. We're proud to share that the demand has been more than the supply, which is a good thing, but it's also has some challenges. But uh, definitely still have it on Amazon. Amazon's actually the only place where they still have the hardcover. There was a paperback printing that came a little quicker than they expected, which is cool. But uh, would love for folks to pick up a copy, engage with it. Uh, follow me on you know Twitter, Dan underscore Grunfeld. Uh, Facebook, I have a book website, dangrunfeld.com, where you can learn more about it. So yeah, this is just really grateful for the opportunity to share the story, to talk about kind of some of the performance aspects of it, which is really fun. And yeah, for people just to, to read more, you'll see that... Uh, my grandmother, she, she's the real hero. And if you've never met a Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. or been inspired by one, you read my book, you, you'll, know, you'll know one. And so that's really special. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice.
You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.